Well, good morning again. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. We are in the last chapter of uh, this wonderful book that we've been going through for ever. Um, Not because it's uh, extraordinarily long, but just because uh, different things have come up. And, uh, you know, as we look at chapter... As we look at chapter 13, and really as we look at the book of Nehemiah as a whole, we really wish that Nehemiah would stop in chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12 is a, is a chapter of great rejoicing, of great celebration, of great excitement over all that God had done, over the, rebuilt, the return of the exiles, over the rebuilding of the wall, over the covenant that had been restored, of God-centered community joining together with worship and with praise. And you read through chapter 12 and you're filled with great excitement and great hope that that can be a part of what we do here. And then you read chapter 13. And chapter 13 is none of those things. Chapter 13 is heartbreaking. Chapter 13 is filled with people going back to sinful habits that they had promised in chapter 10 not to do. Chapter 13 is not the happy ending that we want it to be to the book of Nehemiah. But chapter 13 is a great reminder of our own Christian walk. Chapter 13 is a great reminder of, and a great warning to us that as long as we are on this side of heaven, that there will always be a struggle for God-centered community. And so we'll be taking a look at that this morning. Um, hopefully you found chapter 13. We're going to read the entire chapter, um, which is a little bit lengthy. Um, and so normally we ask to stand and we're going to do that. But if during that time as I'm reading that you need to take a seat, uh, we understand that. And uh, please feel free to do that. So hopefully you found Nehemiah chapter 13. If you would stand at, the, at least at the beginning and honor the reading of God's word this morning, then we will do that together. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated Israel from all of those with foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priest." While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work each had fled to his house, or each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelmiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistants Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought into the Sabbath on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites and they, that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? And among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil, and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoahad, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite, therefore I chased him from me. Remember me them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning 
And Lord, we, we are a people that love easy. Lord, we love, we love our conveniences. We love fast meals. We love fast entertainment that allows us not to think. We love days off. We love anything that makes life easier. And yet we're reminded in your word that as long as we live here, as long as we are tempted by sin, that we must be on guard. That if we are to stand firm in our faith, if we are to be the gospel ambassadors that you've called us to be for your kingdom, that we must be aware. Father, I pray that you would speak your word this morning, or that I would not get in the way, that I would not put my own thoughts or my own ideas, but Lord, that your word would be clear and that it would be effective. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said before, Nehemiah, and as you probably gathered as we read that chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13 is not an easy chapter. It's a difficult one to read. Any chapter where the leader is throwing furniture out into the, out into the courtyard and people are getting hair pulled and beaten and they're getting threatened to have hands laid upon them, there is something terribly wrong that has happened. Something has occurred if Nehemiah is doing all of these things. And so as we step into uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, though, I want to just briefly go over kind of a timeline that happened so that we can better understand this and understand that this timeline is not agreed upon, that there are others that would disagree with my timeline and I would slightly disagree with theirs. But basically what I want us to see there is that there was a point when Nehemiah had left. Chapter 13 starts by saying, on that day. So we get the idea that at the very least, the first paragraph, the first three verses of chapter 13 happened at the same time as chapter 12. But at some point, we're told later in the chapter, just a few verses down, that Nehemiah had left. Now the way that I understand this, and again, there are others that disagree, and I don't know that it's all that important that we understand exactly the timeline, but at some point, Nehemiah had left. That's the important part. Nehemiah had left. Now the way that I see this is that Nehemiah leaves sometime after chapter 11 and then returns, as he says, and on his return, they have the dedication of the wall. And that leads to the reading of God's word. The reading of God's word then leads to them beginning a process of obedience that has to do, in this case, with foreigners who are unbelievers. And then that leads someone to speak up and say, hey, did you know this was going on while you were gone? That, that's the way that I, I see and, and others see this chapter playing out. And so the, the, on that day attaches to chapter, chapter 12, but then we need to understand that at some point, I think before chapter 12, others would disagree with me, that he was gone for a period of about 12 years. 
10 to 12 years. Nehemiah was not at Jerusalem. You'll remember at the beginning of Nehemiah when he asked the king, can I go? The king says, yes, you can go, but you've got to come back. When are you going to come back? So Nehemiah had fulfilled that promise to return to the king. He does so, but then it says he took leave again of the king and went back to Jerusalem. So as we think in our minds, if, if this is kind of the way it plays out, Nehemiah gets the wall done. They have the covenant renewal. They have everything that goes along with that. Nehemiah puts others in charge. We see that throughout those chapters as well. He puts others in charge, and then he leaves to go back to the king. Ten to twelve years pass, and the population of Jerusalem is growing. They've repopulated Jerusalem. Uh, worship is happening there. Uh, the nation is kind of getting back to normal Nehemiah returns, and they have a dedication of the wall. It's kind of a celebration of Nehemiah's return. It's a dedication of what God has done in, in all of this. They have this great celebration. They read the word of God. They act in obedience there in the, chapter, the first three verses of chapter 13. And you can imagine with me that somebody comes up to Nehemiah and says, Hey, we're, I know we're doing this... Uh, this separating from the rest of the world, this separating from unbelievers, did you know that your high priest, who's supposed to be the, minute, the spiritual leader of our people, has given an apartment to our enemy? And you can imagine Nehemiah going, where? In the chambers of the temple. And Nehemiah loses it. Nehemiah goes in and he just begins grabbing furniture and throwing it out. And so we see the beginning of some trouble here. And so he lists four things of trouble. I'm just going to run through them all, and then we're going to go back through and look at each one very quickly. But we see four things of trouble. We see Tobiah has moved into the temple. We see the Levites have been neglected. We see the Sabbath has been broken. And we see that intermarriage has started again. And we'll get into that uh, as well. And so first, let's look at this, this problem, this trouble of Tobiah. Tobiah, you might remember, is an old enemy. If you look at uh, the entirety of the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see the name Tobiah come up again and again. He was one of those that didn't want the wall rebuilt. He was one that tried to discredit Nehemiah through his time there. But now he has come back. And somehow he is related. We get the idea that it is through marriage, but he is related to the high priest. And at some point he has asked the high priest, if he can have a place in Jerusalem. And the high priest not only gives him a place in Jerusalem, he gives him an apartment in the very temple. So that you had the main temple, and then you had the chambers that were connected to that around the outside, and those chambers were used for the collection of the tithe. You see that listed here as well. It's also recorded uh, in different places through the Old Testament what those chambers were used for. But they clean out one of those chambers, and they allow Tobiah to have a, an apartment, basically, there in one of those chambers right next to the temple. This was a problem. This was troubling because it was part of a larger problem of, of disobedience. It was part of a larger problem of disobedience. For one thing, they had made a promise in chapter 10 to obey the entire law of Moses. They had done so promising uh, an understanding blessing that comes with obedience and cursing that comes with disobedience. And yet, 
we see here they are very definitely disobeying. Even the high priest is disobeying the commandment to separate yourselves from those that were unbelievers, from those that were from other nations. But the larger problem was that they had replaced the com or they had replaced the holy with the common. They had replaced the holy with the common. This chamber was to be used for the gathering in of the tithes that were dedicated to God and then be, to be used for the ministry towards the people and for the worship of God. And yet they had put that off to the side and they had replaced it with a worldly desire. Of course, that leads us to the second problem. Because they had replaced the holy with the common, now they were impeded in doing ministry. They were impeded because the, the Levites had been neglected. The Levites had been neglected. This was a broken promise. If you look in chapter 10, verse 37, you're going to see the promise that Israel made when they were renewing the covenant. They specifically make the promise that they will no longer forsake the house of God, that they will support the Levites, that they will support the priest, that they will support the ministry of God. And yet we see here just a mere decade or so later that that has not happened that they have ceased to give those tithes, that they have ceased to hand out the provisions that were for the Levites. And because of this, the Levites had gone home. It says that each one had fled to their, fled to their fields. Why did the Levites do that? Well, the Levites were, were made into sections. They were, they were divided into groups and each group would take a turn serving in the house of God. So you might have this section, you get the first three months, you get the second three months, you get the third three months, you get the last quarter. And you each would take a turn, each group would take a turn in the house of God. But there was a problem with that plan. The problem was that at this time, the main way of supporting your family was agriculture. It was growing your own food so that you could feed your family or so you could sell the excess to provide. But if you're taking three months out of the year to go minister, and I'm, it wasn't three months, it was different time. But if you're taking a time period out of your year to go do ministry in the house of God, then you're not tending to a field. Therefore, your family doesn't have provisions. So the tithe was there to make sure the Levites could provide for their family. So you can imagine if the tithe isn't coming in, if the Levites aren't being provided for, then they have nothing for their family. So they had to go home. They had to go tend to fields. They had to go get food for their families. But when that happened, ministry essentially stopped. The Levites were the ones that did the work. Yeah, the priests were the ones maybe that, that were actually there when the, the calf or the sheep or whatever was being sacrificed, but it was the Levites that were shoveling the coal and the wood. The Levites, the one cleaning up everything. The Levites, the ones that were cleansing everything. The, the Levites had very basic and very fundamental functions that they were doing to allow ministry to continue. Not only that, but they were the choir. They were the singers. They were the worshipers. Now they're gone. And it has impacted the life of Israel. It has impacted their ability to worship. It has impacted their, their obedience because now the Levites who were the accountability partners of Israel, they were gone. 
And Nehemiah is just beside himself. You know, as I, as I think about this, I, as we read this together, I think sometimes it's hard for us to really grab, grasp what's going on here. Like we kind of get it in a, in a mental thing, but emotionally we don't really tie into this very well. So let me give you this scenario. Let's say that we decide we're going to go whole hog into uh, Christmas shoeboxes. Like we're like, that's going to be our ministry and we're going to do it because that's going to ha- be one way that we reach the world with the gospel. And so we fall in love with the Christmas shoebox program more than we ever have before to the point that we're going to spend a whole year gathering supplies and we're going to store those supplies in the back room right off the cry room. We're going to store all the supplies that we gather. So, you know, in January we're collecting toothbrushes and February we're collecting soap and all of it's going to go back there. And then in October rolls around, it's like, okay, it's time to take all those supplies and put them in the Christmas shoe boxes, and we're going we're gonna to spread the gospel. It's going to be fantastic. And somebody goes back there, a group of us go back there, and we open up that storehouse now. We open up that closet, and we look around, and there are no supplies. But rather, there are boxes upon boxes of pamphlets that are pro-abortion. How do you feel? You're upset. (laughs) Like, there's anger, right? And you see this and you're like, where are our supplies? What's going on here? And you come to me, your pastor, and you say, what has happened to what we were going to do, our ministry? What was going to happen to all these supplies? Now they're they're replaced by this thing that we hate. And I say, well, you know, my brother-in-law, he works for Planned Parenthood, and they needed a place to store some stuff, and so I said it'd be okay if we just did that. And we really haven't been had people bringing stuff in anymore because we really don't have a place for it. And so, yeah, there's not much. How short do you think that vote would be to get rid of me? You talk about unanimous votes, that would be a unanimous vote, okay? There should be anger. There should be rage over something like that. That's what Nehemiah is experiencing. Nehemiah knows this chamber was meant for the holy things. It was meant for ministry and now it has been replaced by our enemy, by the common. And now ministry has stopped. The people are running rampant, doing whatever they want to do. And it's all because of this action. Do you begin to see the emotion and why Nehemiah is so upset? Why Nehemiah begins chucking furniture? Why later he's going to pull out hair and beat people? I don't know that we need to go quite that far, but do you get it? We, sometimes we need to, to take a step back and, and think about what's really happening here. So we have Tobiah, the enemy, taking up residence in the chamber of the temple. We have that leading to the Levites to worship no longer happening, to the accountability of Israel being gone. And now we go into what that, what, where that takes us, which is into the Sabbath being broken. The Levites are no longer there to lead worship. The Levites are no longer there to hold people accountable. And so now we have the Sabbath being broken. This is broken, promise number two or three, however you want to look at it. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 31, you have this direct promise once again. Remember, they had promised to keep all the law of Moses, but they had made specific 
commitments to some of that. They had made a specific commitment that they were going to no longer abandon the ministry of the temple. They had done that. They had also made a specific promise not to uh, break the Sabbath, no longer to work on the Sabbath or to, to sell or, or have goods come into the Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And now they break that promise. Nehemiah looks around him and he sees work happening. They're treading the wine presses. They're bringing loads into Jerusalem to sell. They're even inviting people from other places to come in and to sell. All of this is happening. Why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? We kind of had to ask that question a little bit with Tobiah and the Levites. Why, why is this breaking the Sabbath a big deal? Breaking the Sabbath is a big deal for, the, for the, the Jews of the Old Testament because it was a defining mark of who they were. It was a defining mark of who they were and who they served. The Sabbath, in large part, was about trust. It was about trust. Why do we, war, why do we desire to work all seven days? Because we desire to have more. We desire to gather more in. We desire to provide more. We desire to we want more. And so we work all seven days in part to do all that stuff. And the Sabbath was a reminder to take a break because ultimately it's not us who provide for us. Ultimately, it's God who provides. And so the Sabbath is a day of trust. It's a, it's a day of rest. It's a day of worship. A reminder that the world doesn't revolve around us. The world revolves around Him. Not only that, but as I said, it's a distinction. It's a, it's a divining, defining mark of Israel. Everyone had temples. Everyone had temples. Everyone made sacrifices. Everyone worshipped in some way. Everyone had their gods. That, having a god, having a temple, having a time of sacrifice, that was nothing special in this time period. That was commonplace. But having a day where you did nothing, Having a day that was set aside, that was different. The world didn't understand that. The world thought, why not work harder? Why not work more? Why not earn more? Where Jerusalem or Israel said, no, we depend on him for that. And so they rested. So by not obeying the Sabbath, they were saying, we don't trust him. We're going to do it on our own. By not obeying the Sabbath, they were saying, we're no different than the world. We're just like them. And anytime we do that, anytime we replace the holy with the common, anytime we replace our trust in Him with our trust in ourselves, anytime that we say, we're just like them, we're no different. Anytime we do that, we remove our witness. We remove our ability to say there's something special here. We're, we remove our ability for God to speak through us into the hearts of others. It's a big deal. The last problem that we come to, again, comes out of the fact that the Levites were not there to, to be accountability. The Levites were not there to watch over the people. And the last problem is intermarriage. It's broken promise number three. You can go back to 10, chapter 10, verse 30. They break another promise. Again, they had promised not to marry 
women of other nations and not to, um, not to give their daughters away to other nations either. And I want to remind you, as I did when we went over chapter 10, this is a faith issue. This is not a racial one. This is a faith issue. This is not a racial one. The problem here is not uh, marrying someone from another nation and that, that causing strife. The problem was is that other nations didn't believe in God as their Lord. They didn't believe God to be God. You, you see this. I mean, go back and look at the book of Ruth. What is Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite. And yet, Ruth is in this book. Why? Because Ruth was a believer. Ruth took and, and became a believer in the one true God, even when it wasn't to her advantage. It was a real commitment. This is not an issue of race. This is an issue of when you join together with another person in marriage, they should be like-minded. They should be a believer. Nehemiah describes what was happening here. The Israelites were marrying women who were not believers, and the way they were raising their children was leading those children away from God, not towards God. They were losing their language and their ability to understand, therefore their ability to understand Scripture. They were chasing after idols. We get that, the inclination there, the, the idea there. And the fact that he references Solomon. He gives this example of Solomon. Turn back, if you, if you can, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 11. I want to just show this to you really quick, what Nehemiah is referencing here. If you remember Solomon, Solomon was the son of David. He was a great king. In fact, under him, Israel became incredibly powerful and incredibly rich. God had blessed him with incredible wisdom. And yet, we come to, towards the end of Solomon's life, and this is what is recorded in chapter 11. It says, Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Remember, that's the point here. This is not a race issue. This is a faith issue. They're going to turn your heart towards a different direction than me. But Solomon clung to the clung to these in love. Jump down to verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess, goddess of the Sidians, after Milcom, the, ab, um, the abom abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And then it goes on to describe that he built, he built places of worship towards the idols. Nehemiah says, stop it. Stop marrying those who don't believe in God. We talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this in chapter 10. It is easier, it is easier to pull someone off a chair than to pull someone up onto it. It's just the reality of the way that relationships go. If you go into a relationship 
thinking, oh, I'm going to change them. Oh, they'll eventually get it. It's just not the normal reality of what happens. I said this comment earlier in the week as I was talking with someone about this issue. God commands us to do missions and evangelism. But dating and marriage are not the place for those. Dating and marriage are not the place for those. Those are other places. Those are other things. When we come to the holy, the holy act of marriage, we should desire, as Paul says, to be yoked equally. He, he says don't be yoked unequally. We should desire to come together with those that are like-minded, those that believe and, and know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Parents, and, and this strikes closer to home for me now than ever, parents, we have to begin teaching our children young that the only non-negotiable, the non-negotiable in dating and in marriage is that they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. My daughter will bring home guys despite my objections. And I will dislike every one of them. She might bring home she might bring home a guy with pink hair. She might bring home a guy with no hair. She might bring home a Chicago Cub fan. She might bring home even worse abomination, a Kansas fan. She might bring home a guy that doesn't like sports at all, at which point we'll have nothing to talk about. But so help me. If he could sit down and look me in the eye and tell me that he knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and that he follows him with everything that he has and he loves my daughter, then I have no objection. That is all I can desire. Brothers and sisters who are parents, we need to start now. We question why, why our kids and our grandkids maybe have gone other directions. Did we teach them who to marry? Did we teach them the non-negotiable? Nehemiah saw what was happening to his people. They were losing their faith. They were losing their obedience. And Nehemiah reminded them. Nehemiah reminded them. These are the things that were happening when God brought discipline and judgment upon us. You know that that's what happened. You made a promise that you weren't going to do these things anymore. We celebrated that promise. We just got done worshiping this promise. You want to go back? You want to go back to the way it was before? What is wrong with you? As we see this trouble, and, and so it makes sense as we see Nehemiah's response, why he did what he did. We understand when we look at these four problems and why they were caused and what caused them, we can't help but understand the outrage at sin. Ephesians chapter 4 makes an interesting point. If you go over there with me very quickly. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a verse that has always, I won't say it's befuddled, but it has always been interesting. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, in this passage, he is talking about having a new life. He's talking about how we're to act as Christians. Paul is. And he says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That's one sentence, one, one connection point. Have you ever read that and gone, I thought we weren't supposed to be angry. Wait a minute. We're not supposed to be angry. We're believers. We're Christians. We're supposed to be full of grace, mercy, love, compassion. Where does this angry thing come in? And yet we see it throughout Scripture. We see the Levites get angry at different points and they hold Israel accountable. We see Nehemiah here get angry and uh, hold Israel accountable. We see Jesus, interestingly enough. Jesus, you'll remember the story where he heals a man on the Sabbath? Go back and read that, go back and read that story sometime. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and, the fair, and he knows the thoughts of the Pharisees. And what does it say? It says he looked up in anger. He was angry towards them over their uncompassion. Later on, Jesus does what when he cleanses the temple? Do you think he braided a cord together and flipped over change tables with joy and happiness? You think there might have been just a touch of anger there? I don't know about you, but when I destroy property, it's generally not with a huge smile on my face. Okay, maybe sometimes. But there's anger, right? So when it says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin, what is Paul talking about? I believe he is talking about the righteous, holy anger that comes when we observe sin. When we observe that which destroys people, that which God hates, there should be something inside of us that is stirred. And yet, it says, do not sin. Okay, how do we not do that, Paul? It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, one of the great things about Nehemiah is Nehemiah is outraged, but he communicates clearly why. He gives clear communication to why he is outraged. He goes to the people that are responsible and says, why have you done this? Why has this happened? And this is how, what we're going to do different. He doesn't allow it to slide by. We are, as human beings, fantastic at this because we hate confrontation. Most of us absolutely hate confrontation. So we see sin and we're angry about it, but rather than dealing with it, what do we do? We sweep it under the rug and we go to sleep. We don't ever communicate about it. And then it festers and it grows and then it leads to jealousy, it leads to discontentment, it leads to bitterness, and at that point, anger is sin. But if we will confront it and speak truth in honesty, then it can be different. Not only do we see Nehemiah's outrage at sin as clear communication, but we see decisive action. We see decisive action. He doesn't just communicate what, what they're going to do. He says, we're going to change how we act. He goes and he tosses the furniture out. He reestablishes the tithe. He makes sure that the Levites are provided for. He shuts the gates of Jerusalem. He threatens those that try to come in. He goes to the nobles who are the economic powers and says this has to stop. He goes to the people who have, have intermarried and says this is wrong. He gets rid of the priests who had done that very thing. Brothers and sisters, we need to have divisive decisive action when we see sin we need to not just be silent now we can do that with compassion and grace do you think nehemiah did all these things do you think he was angry because he disliked israel 
Do you think he did these things because he hated the people of Jerusalem? No. He was angry for the exact opposite reason. He was angry because he loved them. He was angry because he desired for God-centered community. He was angry because he knew what God wanted from the people and, and the blessings that God wanted to pour out, and yet the people were running the other direction. He was angry out of his love for them. When we see sin in the lives of others, when we see sin in our own lives, we should have great emotion about that. We should be clear in our communication about that. We should have, take decisive action, but we can do that out of a place of love. We can communicate that in a way of grace and mercy. So where does that bring us? Chapter 13, as we look at the problems that we see there, as we look at the difficulties we see there, as we look at Nehemiah's response, chapter 13 reminds us of the never-ending struggle for God-centered community. There is an ongoing cycle. We cannot become content with the status quo. It is easy for us to get in a place where all is well, where all is good, and for us to let our guard down, for us to begin to let, let things slide, for us to begin just to be ho-hum about our faith, about our relationships. But the reality is, as we see here in chapter 13, that there is always an enemy. In chapter 13, it's a very present, very real enemy in Tobiah. But for us, it's the enemy. Satan is always there desiring to destroy that which God had put together, that which God desires to bless. He's always there, right there on the edge, waiting, tempting, distracting, it reminds us of our need for accountability. Much of what happens in chapter 13 happens because the Levites aren't there to do something about it. They're not there to hold Israel accountable, to put a stop to some of these things. In the same way, you and I need accountability in our own lives. We need accountability as a church. To be able to say, hey, I, I don't, I'm not sure about this. I don't, I don't think this lines up with the Word of God. To in love, go to a brother or sister and say, I, I, this worries me. This concerns me. Can we pray about this? Can I talk to you about this? Can we study God's word about this? And, and let's see what, what it says. It reminds us of our need for repentance. We all make mistakes. We all fall short. We all have sinful natures and have sinful habits that we fall back into any time we don't pay attention. And we are in need of repentance continually. Lord, forgive us for this specific sin that I know that I've committed. Forgive me for it. Help me to walk after you. Help me to walk the other direction. Help me to remember your commands when I'm tempted in this area. So that we may continually refocus on him. And it's a reminder to be on our guard. The end of Ephesians, which we, we read out of chapter 4 earlier, the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, he ends that letter this way. He says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he begins to list what that armor looks like. It's a daily process, brothers and sisters. It's a daily process to remember who our king is. It's a daily process to remember the life that he's called us to. And it's a life of blessing. But it's also, it's also a reminder that we have an enemy that would like to destroy that, would like to destroy our witness. And we have a responsibility to ourselves, we have a responsibility to our church, brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to our community, and ultimately we have a responsibility to our Lord to put on the whole armor of God every day, to be on guard against the enemy who would like to destroy And to be an ambassador of that great gospel that we have been entrusted with. Let us not just remember the greatness of chapter 12. Let us remember the lessons of chapter 13. You know, this sermon is is really mostly for believers. And, And I know that they're in a crowd this size. There are probably someone, at least one of us, that have never put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That we're not part of a community. And, and I would pray today that you would, you would accept the invitation that Christ extends to you. But believer, this message is largely for you. And my, my charge to you from the word of God this morning is that you would make a commitment this morning to God-centered community. That you would make a commitment to be a part of what he is doing here. That you would make a commitment to be present. That you would make a commitment to be active. And I know some some sense I'm preaching to the choir here. But you would make a commitment to be active. That you would make a commitment with your time and your resources and your talents to see through what God is doing here. That you would make a commitment to your children and your grandchildren, to raise them and help them to understand what God has designed for them. That they may carry on the faith. That they may know God in a saving relationship. That you would make a commitment to be on your guard for the love of Christ and for the love of others. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe you need to renew that commitment. Maybe you need to make a new commitment. Maybe Lord is dealing with you in some other way. But this morning, we're just going to have a time. You can sing along with us. You can pray at your seat. You can come find me. I'm going to be in the back. We're just going to have a time of prayer. Um, This week, we're again, uh, just as a reminder, we're dismissing kind of by rows just to keep distance. We'll probably put an end to that pretty soon, but um, just kind of wait for you to be dismissed, and we'll be doing that shortly. But right now, just just focus on Him. Let's pray. Father, this is, chapter 13 is, it's a reminder of the place that we live in. It's a reminder of how our hearts are. Lord, we, we so often get those mountaintop experiences spiritually where we feel so close to you and we feel so real that relationship's tangible and, and we want to celebrate and we want to be excited and we want just to, to just stay there. 
And yet, life happens. And we come off the mountaintop and we come back into the valley and, and we get complacent, we get busy, and, and slowly but surely things creep back into our lives that shouldn't be there. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to be a people that are on guard. That you would help us to be a people that are comfortable with being accountable to one another. That you would help us to be a people that hate sin the way that you hate it. That we would be a people that would, that would be in love with, with God-centered community that focuses on you and, and pursues you together as one family, as one body. Lord, that we would not get complacent just because things are well, but that we would desire more. Father, I pray especially, Lord, for our children and our grandchildren. Lord, that you would work in their lives as well. Lord, that you would use us as tools and instruments of your grace and of your word to speak truth into their lives. Lord, they are our primary mission field. It is what you have called us to if you've called us to be parents. For those of us that aren't parents, we have been put around others for that same ministry. Lord, help us to take that seriously as well. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the ways that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you are always faithful to us, even when we fail you. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to speak to our hearts this morning, even as we dismiss. We pray this in your name. Amen.